0: The tech job market can be a confusing place. Sometimes, without really committing to a job search, it's quite hard to find out the details about companies that are hiring in the space. And that's where Haystack comes in. Haystack is a portal with a clear view of all the coolest companies in the tech industry. You can see what it's like to work there and what they're hiring for. And best of all, you won't have to have a 20 minute conversation with a recruiter to find out the company's name. To find out more about Haystack, go to haystackapp.io or check out episode 59 of The Go to Career. Thanks to Haystack for sponsoring and enjoy the show. Happy Monday, developers, and welcome to another episode of The Coder Career. My name's Cameron Blackwood, and today I'm joined by On Freund. On is a highly experienced entrepreneur. He's currently the CEO of Wilco. We'll chat more about Wilco in the episode, but it's a super exciting product to help you level up your skills in code. On also spent several years at WeWork during their highest phase of growth. We chat about Wilco, the best ways to learn to code, and On's experience of going into engineering management. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to rate it on the podcast platform of your choice. And don't forget to check out the Discord server for the latest information. But without further ado, here's my chat with On Freund.
1: Hey On, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm doing great. How about you?
0: Yeah, not bad. Thanks. Not bad. Um, I've made a habit of always introing with the weather on these podcasts. Um, and because I'm in Scotland, it's cold. Um, but as you can see behind me, it is sunny. So I have something to be happy about at least. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> all good. So for the listeners who haven't come across you before, um, do you want to explain a little bit about uh, who you are and what you're doing right now and what a little bit about what you have done as
1: well? Sure. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm on. Uh, From Tel Aviv, Uh, I'm the co-founder of Wilco, Uh, and I guess we'll have a chance to talk about Wilco uh, later today, but let's say that I spent most of my career in engineering management positions. Um, I love programming. I've been doing that since the age of eight. Um, So uh, I guess that's me professionally in a nutshell.
0: That's pretty cool. I wish I got into programming when I was eight. I waited until I was twenty-three, so uh, a little never bit later late. on in life. <laughs> it's, it's true. Never it's never too late. late. It's absolutely never too late. I mean, what that is a super early age to get started, though. Um, respect for that. I mean, ha- how did you how did you discover it at such a young age?
1: Well, we had uh, we had a computer in the house back then. It was like a computer in the house, not not like yeah. everyone <laughs> having their own. Uh, not to mention phones and, and things like that. So we had a computer. It was a, um, uh, an IBM XT uh, or, or a clone of, a, of an IBM XT. Um, and we had those booklets that uh, taught basic, uh, the basic programming language for those who remember. And I just started reading them and it was really cool. And, you know, very quickly I was able to do things um, and the feedback loop was so short, you know, you do something, you see what happens, you know, people in other types of engineering can only dream of, of that type of short feedback loop. Um, you know, if you're in mechanical engineering, you actually have to produce the parts um, to in order to see them in action. Uh, and, and here I am writing commands to the computer and and seeing how they work. And I was... I guess I was really drawn to it from then on. Um, and after basic, I just started learning other languages uh, and other paradigms and, and very quickly realized that this is, I'm not going to say my calling, but uh, this is something I enjoy doing and and would like to do for the rest of my life, at least in some capacity.
0: Yeah. It, it, there's nothing like that feeling of when you put something in, you process something, and then you get something out. It's 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 a very magic feeling. And I think uh people know I, I i can relate exactly what you're saying even though i i did it at a different point in my life i discovered it a bit later like you do just get that that feeling where it's like okay yeah this is this is something i like i want to explore this more i mean when, when you were doing that was it stuff like games you were you're programming or, or other stuff
1: yeah games are always a great thing to program like whenever you want to practice and or whatever you want to get people hooked on what it is that you're doing, games are always a great a great way to start. So uh, it starts with textual games, right? And guess a number. Um, and that's relatively easy to program, right? The, the computer chooses a number at random, uh, gets an input, compares it to the number, says, you says know, something like too high, too low, whatever. Um, it's not the most engaging game ever, but it's a good start, right? Um, and then you gradually build more and more sophisticated games um and and you know, in between, you also sprinkle some non games every now and then <laughs> uh, but but games games were uh were definitely a huge chunk of the things that I've built back then
0: yeah it it's one of those things where I think if you wanna truly get good at a skill, you've gotta keep it fun, like you've gotta retain the enjoyment like for example i I play rugby uh as one of my main hobbies outside work. And, like, if I was just drilling, uh, running at a tackle bag a hundred times, like, I I would lose the interest. Like, you've got to keep it fun. And, like, if we're instead doing a drill where it simulates what it's like to be in the game and you get the rush and you're quickly... Changing things like it keeps it interesting, keeps it exciting. I think there's definitely something behind that where if you're working on a coding problem you genuinely enjoy, especially when especially when you're younger. Like, um, you know, I've never taught a kid to code, but I'd imagine I wouldn't give them a uh, data structures and algorithms course, right? I'd give them something like Scratch uh, because yep. you've got it. You've got to keep it fun, and even as adults, we need to remember that. I think it's easy to forget, and it's one of the best ways to avoid burnout if you're learning to code. And I think is just genuinely keeping the, the projects you work on fun.
1: And, and there's a lot of research about how games are basically the way for us to learn. And, and it's not just humans, by the way. Animals uh, play games too, right? And, and you, know, you mentioned earlier you have a cat. I'm sure you <laughs> see your cat playing quite a lot, uh, whether it's, you know, sometimes it's just a, a, um, something hanging loose that they're trying to, trying to catch and, and throw and, 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 uh, and play with. Um, and in a way that keeps their reflexes sharp, right? That's what they're doing it for. Uh, and we humans are no different. We also need, uh, we need games to to learn and to practice our skills.
0: Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, uh, I think having, I mean, obviously we'll go on to talk more in depth at Wilco, but having looked at the, the quests, um, that, that you offer, I, I can see where that kind of matches up in the sense that there interesting, interesting things. Like I, I was looking at them, there's a new one called Robocrop, which looks like it's the most yep. recent one using the DALI um, image generation API and just stuff like that, you know, you're keeping interest and keeping it fun. Um, so I guess actually it's probably appropriate to say now what what is Wilco and um, how, how would uh, how would people use it? Because it's very appropriate for most listeners of this podcast, I would say.
1: Yeah, sure. So Wilco is kind of like a flight simulator, but for software instead of aviation. So, if you want to gain experience as a software engineer, the best way you have to do what you had to—to uh, to, to get it—is to practice on the job. But when you practice on the job, it's a very slow. You can only practice what you actually encounter. Um, Be very error prone because you can make catastrophic mistakes that are going to affect production or uh, you know whatever it is that you're working on. And C it doesn't provide equal opportunity because you actually need a job to practice. Um, and even if you have a job, you might not get access to the best mentors out there or the production environment you have is, is perhaps flawed in many ways. Um, so we built Wilco in a way that you can practice at your own time, at your own pace, in a very safe environment. You basically join a fantasy company and that company has a production-like system with logging and monitoring and analytics and load balancing and a real data set. Uh, But more importantly, it has colleagues and team leads and support people and DevOps. And on top of that, you go on what we call quests. And a quest could be, hey, Cam, we have a performance problem in production. Please figure out what happened. What's the root cause? What's the extent of the damage? Fix it and communicate it to stakeholders. And we want you to practice not just the fix it part, which is, you know, the learning to code part, which you can find in so many other places, but we want you to also practice knowing that something went wrong. Like, how do you even know that? Uh, what do you do to investigate it? Um, when do you go for a quick and dirty fix? When do you go for something more meaningful? How do you ensure that lessons are learned and implemented? All of these tiny little things that we pick up throughout our career that, in a way, they constitute our experience.
0: Yeah, it's really funny that, actually, because the whole reason why I set up the Code to Career podcast was because I think there's so many things to do with a coding career that are not coding uh, that are so important. Like all that stuff you just mentioned, and then as well, the aspects of what we cover on uh, on the podcast, stuff like interviewing and and um, you know job application tracking and career change strategy. Just there's so many little skills that you end up picking up that are just away from the isolation of just fixing an issue, like, like you mentioned, that are just so important. And I think there is so much concentration on, you must code it the right way, like red, green kind of pass fail when actually like there's so much of a degree of nuance that you need to understand. If you want to become a good developer, like I'd say particularly in the last couple of years, as I've, you know, getting towards the point where I'm now thinking about trying to get to senior developer myself, I'm now starting to think more about, it's not that my coding is improving, it's more about my situational awareness. And, um, yep. I really like that you frame things in, in the sense of like the company has issues because. 99% of people are going to be working for an organization of some kind. They're not going to be a solo coder. So it is so important to frame things that way because it is really scary going into your first job, no matter whether you're a career changer or a comp sci grad who's always wanted to be a developer, going into that first job and suddenly having all this auxiliary stuff uh, that isn't just coding is, um, yeah, it's very intimidating. So that's, um, yeah, that's on, really, on your that's first
1: really cool. day, you're bound to have imposter syndrome even though it, it might not be imposter syndrome because you might actually be an imposter at that point in time because you don't know anything when you're starting out. Uh, and everything you've learned so far has been about writing code. But as you mentioned, that's just one scale out of so many. There's such a wide array of skills, both soft and hard, that you need to master to become a good engineer. And no one is teaching you those in any way in college or at a boot camp, or in online courses the only way you pick them up is by practicing and you know you're kind of you're kind of stuck like how do i how do i acquire um those skills and the best answer you'll get is practice and that's why you have that bootstrapping problem where people you know companies want experienced developers but you have to start somewhere right where do you gain that experience and and why do companies want experienced developers because they want the ones who developed those skills.
0: Yeah, it's there's so many little things that you just pick up from a job that are just completely intangible. Like I, I, I was thinking just then, like there's so many things that you just never, you would never think to learn around the whole project management cycle. Like um, I was trying to remember exactly what happened uh, to me that was a bit, bit of a funny story. My first retro, that was it. I didn't know what a retro was and I was too afraid to ask. Um, and I went into it. And, um, I completely misunderstood and I thought it was a special meeting to like, uh, see how i had been settling into the company. And, um, I started chatting about like how welcome I felt and like how much I've been learning and all the rest of it for, um, probably about 10 minutes before someone cut in and stopped me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was like, Cam, like, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but this is just about the sprint cycle (laughs) (laughs) and just like, uh, we're like, we more want to hear about the front end. Tickets you've been given, um, but you know, I, I just had no idea because you you don't end up picking up this stuff. So I think it, I, I think it's really cool that's how that's how you frame things.
1: Yeah, totally. And and you know, the the retro is just one ceremony, but there's just so many skills. You know, how do you review code, or you know, even more complicated, how do you get your code reviewed? That's really complicated. And 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 you know, a code review is both a clash of egos. And an actual hard skills um, event, right? You really have to mix those two. And when you're going into your first review, first of all, you have little to no uh, um, confidence in your own ability, right? So you're getting into that review thinking whatever people are saying is bound to be right and I'm wrong. Um, or maybe some people are too cocky and, and even though they're pretty new at this, they're just going to say, I know what I'm doing. I am gonna ignore all pieces of feedback. And maybe I'm going to even be some, be a bit snarky about it. Right. Um, and you really have to go through a lot of reviews on both sides of the ball to be successful at them. Um, and you know, that that's another one of those ceremonies like a retro, um, that, that you have to get used to. Uh, But the real truth is, we as developers don't actually do a lot of code writing. I mean, yes, it's the basic skill, the undergrads, everything else that we're doing. But we don't do it so much as we'd like to think. And in the future, we're probably going to do it even less because, you know, people are using Copilot or even ChatGPT to write their code for them. So that skill, in a way, is even diminishing in importance. But even if ChatGPT wrote the code for you, or even if you're using a, a no-code platform, you're still building a production system. You have to maintain it. You have to think about instrumentation. You have to think about, um, you know, is it open to changes? Um, you have to think about performance implications of the things that you're doing and security implications. Of whatever it is that you're doing. Um, You have to think about working in a team and and building a system that is easy to to understand and comprehend for others. Even if it's no code, people still need to be able to get into it and understand what's happening. So many, so many skills that are still needed, even in a world where we're not writing code at all. And that's why we want to focus on those.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I totally agree. And I think it's one of those, you assume before you get into the industry that you're going to be spending 95% of your day writing code and maybe you have to stand up and that's the only time when you're not. And actually a typical example for me today, I have my stand up and then I'm on a call about some user experience stuff for like two hours because it was important for us to think about how we were going to design the front end of of a new product and actually discussing it was far more important than me going away in cowboy coding because yep. as much as i'm sure it would have been a great product it would have been very tailored towards exactly how i like to do things um, uh, both in terms of the code and the user experience because you, you have to think about all the stakeholders both internal external so the end user the other developers the devops team if it's if it's uh, um, kind of a production system you're putting into place there's so many factors at play that aren't considered and that is one thing that I understand that people don't like meetings uh, as developers, but a lot of meetings are unfortunately necessary. I mean, I don't know how much you agree on that, but I, I do think people over-exaggerate how bad meetings are. Like some are needed.
1: Well, you know, like any generalization, it's bound to be right sometimes and, and wrong most of the times. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a big fan of meetings and, you know, I do want to avoid them. When I can and, and definitely recurring meetings, which I think are, you know, the, the hardest to, uh, to let go of and, and sometimes the biggest offenders. Um, but sometimes, yes, a good meeting is going to uh, be the equivalent of maybe a week's, of, a week's worth of wasted work, right? Um, so as long as you're mindful and as long as you're trying your best to avoid recurring meetings as much as possible, I think you're in good shape. So that,
0: that's interesting about recurring meetings, because we talked about ceremonies very briefly earlier, what are your thoughts on the agile ceremonies, So if you're doing retro standups, et cetera?
1: Well, you know, like I said, it, it is a generalization, right? It doesn't mean that a recurring meeting is not a good one. Uh, for example, we at Wilco have a weekly recurring meeting with the entire company, it's the all hands where, you know, um, we, uh, we, we get to uh, to present to the entire team and different people um, present every week, we think it's super important and I'm not going to give it up for anything. But then if one week it ends up being just 20 minutes instead of a full hour, I'm going to cut it short. I'm not going to wait for the full hour to complete and then say, all right, now we're done. Um, So, you know, I I don't feel obligated to just stretch it to fit uh, the time. Uh, But then I see recurring meetings that really have no real need for them and just have this set cadence. And, you know, I, I, I was, when I left WeWork um, I was unemployed for about a month and a half or so before starting my next job. Um, I already knew where I was going, but I had some uh, time off in between. And I found out that there's a huge difference between the employed calendar and the unemployed calendar. So the employed calendar was so full of recurring meetings that if you wanted to meet me, most chances I'd say, hey, the next three weeks are completely booked. The calendar is full, but actually something cleared up tomorrow if you want to meet or maybe even later today. Whereas if you're unemployed, your calendar is like, Hey, I'm fully booked this week, but if you want to meet next week, just pick any time you want and I'm available.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's it's difficult, I think, especially once you get up to management as well to avoid just being completely stuck in all of them. I mean, um, that was actually something something I meant to ask you as well. When I was doing my research before um, you came on the, uh, on the podcast, I noticed actually you advanced up to management Relatively quickly uh, in your career into places like WeWork, what made you realize that that was for you? And do you think there was any kind of secret in, in, into knowing early on if you if you should get into management?
1: It's it's a great question because back in the day, there there was no real way for you to get ahead without getting into management. So mm. um, you know, large companies always had uh, the IC individual contributor track uh, where you can get promoted. Uh, based on your skills rather than your um, management skills. But for startups, it's a rather new concept. You know, it's been around for maybe, uh, seriously, it's been around for maybe 10 years or so. Uh, But, you know, 15 years ago, when I was making my first steps into management or 15 or 16 years ago. If you wanted to get ahead, you really had no other option. Like the only real way to get promoted was to become a manager. And I wanted to get promoted. I wanted more responsibility. Um, I wanted a fancier title. Um, and the only way to get that was to be a manager. Now, in retrospect, it was the right move for me. And, you know, that, that's what I've been doing for the past 15 years or so. and And I like it. But I've seen it so many times where someone gets promoted into management and after a while just says, you know what, I was just looking for a promotion and more responsibility. I didn't really you know, plan on managing people and I don't want to do it. And you know, people don't really understand that. Management is mostly a people thing, right? Uh, it, it's, it's not even about work and getting things done. And it's a conversation I've, I've had, um, you know, with, with someone who told me they were about to get their first management position. And, and he told me, well, you know, I've been sort of in charge of a project with um, about five people working for me on that project. So I feel like I know what's expected of me and, and you know, what are the next steps? And, and I told that person, actually, you've managed the workload. Of five people, you didn't manage five people. That's something completely different. You didn't set their career path. Um, you didn't deal with any of their personal concerns. Um, you weren't in touch with the, with their feedback on how the company is doing. Um, you didn't have to worry about what would be the next project for them. Um, and even vacation days, you know, they had to go and and if they wanted to take some time off, they went to their manager. They didn't go to you. So. Yes, you managed their workload, and, and you did a great job at that. But don't be fooled into thinking that prepared you for people management in any way. That's a completely different skill, which that person went on to master uh, in an amazing fashion, but not because of the experience they thought they had beforehand.
0: Yeah, it, it's interesting what you say about people either deciding it's for them or not, or not for them and then stepping back into IC potentially, because I've also seen that quite a bit. But I guess that, that's the thing. People don't need to panic if they're you know, a mid-level dev or a senior level dev at the moment and thinking, oh man, do I, do I go and become a principal or, or do I go and become an engineering manager? Because from what I, I I can see, like it seems to be fairly fluid. Like For me right now, I probably see myself more going down the management track, but from what I've seen, people can switch like certainly up until a certain level, uh, it seems to be kind of an okay thing to do.
1: Yeah. And depends a lot on the company, but I've definitely seen, I have seen CTOs go back to being ICs and I'm not talking about just, you know, CTOs in a, in a one person company. I'm talking yeah. about CTOs who had like a team of, of 10, 15 people, uh, sometimes even more and decided in their, in their next job that they just want to be an IC and, and contribute code like anyone else. Um. And I've seen people go down the IC track and at some point say, hey, I actually want to manage. And I, I've seen that transition happen successfully. So definitely don't worry about painting yourself into a corner, uh, but make sure that you're, you know, whatever it is, you're in a company that appreciates that appreciates that, um, and is going to support you in your lateral move from IC to management or vice versa.
0: Yeah. And in terms of, uh, even taking the next step on from there, uh, like you've done yourself of being a founder, is there a, anything people can do if they know they want to do that eventually be an entrepreneur? I, I guess you would have learned a lot of places like, like we work, like you mentioned, um, that are going through hypergrowth. Would you say join a high growth startup, learn the ropes and then go and try and do it yourself? Is that the optimum strategy?
1: So definitely a high growth startup is a great school. For entrepreneurship, Um, but I think the most important thing about entrepreneurship, especially in the CEO position, is that there are just so many things you need to do okay. So instead of trying to be the master of any one thing, just build yourself out in 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 a sort of breadth first approach. Uh, Accumulate as many skills as you can, and be okay at them. You don't have to be an expert in any of them. Just you know get to a point where you feel comfortable. And I think that really sets you up to be a founder. Now, as I mentioned, for a CEO, that's even more important, but it's important for any founder because even if you're the CTO or the VP Eng, you're still going to do a lot of other things that a non-founding VP Eng at a company is just never going to do. So, you know, just make sure that you expose yourself to as much as you can and The cool thing is that your managers are always going to be happy, or at least most managers are going to be happy about delegating things to you. So you know, if you come to your manager and say, "Hey, I want to experiment more with um, with budgeting," so you know, if I can help you um, with our budget for the next year, I'd be happy to do that. And and you know, there's a good chance your manager is going to say, "Hey, actually, you know, I, I can't expose." Uh, payroll to you but if you want to work on any non-payroll budget let's do it and you know maybe you're going to be in charge of um, the cloud costs or SaaS costs that the team is using or whatever and hey you've picked up a new skill
0: yeah and the the L responsibility seems to be kind of a lot of the time the magic line um, if you want to progress up the management track is what i've seen so um, yeah i totally agree about the managing managing costs but like you say probably unlikely to let, let you look at payroll but obviously SaaS costs are absolutely huge for any tech company uh like yeah, i've exactly. heard about all these Who who is it i i forget the guy's name who runs the pragmatic engineer um uh, i forget his name Ger- gurgly i think his name uh gurgly all i think his name is he shared something about how each startup's got like on average, over seventy completely unused uh, SaaS subscriptions. So it's a very good way of uh, generating your value to a company by saving the money. Because a lot of the time we just think about how we can generate a company money, but if you can save a company money um, as an individual engineer and something like that, then you know it's a it's a good thing to put on the uh, on the resume, right? Like I've uh, saved, yep. saved costs, especially in the current economic climate that we find ourselves in.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No manager is ever going to say. I can't believe you saved us those, uh, those 10 K a month. <laughs> I want them back. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, for, for, for you, did you always want to be a founder? Did you, did you know that was always one, what you want to do and you were just waiting for the right opportunity or is it something that developed later in your career? Uh,
1: I, I guess I have, I've had my ups and downs. I, there, there was a time where I knew that I want to be an entrepreneur. Um, and it was clear to me that that's my calling and, and I tried it and failed miserably. Um, and then there were times where I thought I'm never going to do it. And, and by the way, post WeWork, I came out of WeWork thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I definitely know that I'm not going to, uh, to be a startup founder. And I actually joined the VC firm for a while. Um, eventually, Wilco was stronger than me. So it wasn't about starting a company as much as it was passionate about the problem. And that's something that I share with, with my two co-founders, Alon and Shem. Uh, when we met for the first time, we were all happily employed um, at good companies. And we set out to solve a problem. And we didn't think that we're going to be startup founders. Uh, we just thought about this problem and how cool it is and, and how cool it would be to solve it. Um, and we started working on it nights and weekends. And only after a while of, of being in the trenches of Wilco, we thought to ourselves, you know what, actually we're sort of founders and it's time to start doing it full time.
0: Yeah, I I think it's so important that it comes from a place where you're thinking like, I I can see this as a clear problem that needs to be solved. And you have the genuine interest in hacking away at that for a while, like, uh, like you did, like a lot of people ask me, um, I mean, obviously Wilco is actually kind of a solution to this problem, but a lot of people ask me. I'm looking to get into software engineering I have no experience how can I get experience so I say okay um, what I would do is I would open make sure the notes app on my phone or carry around a notebook for a few days and start jotting down things in my day to day life that annoy me um, that I find inconvenient and I'll yeah. think about how can I make some kind of software solution to this? Because chances are, it's not just me that this happened to. Bonus points if it's somehow a B2B issue, but that's quite hard to discover. Uh, so once they've done that, they can kind of draft it down to what's the most realistic one that they're going to be able to handle as a, as a new developer. And then they create a project um, based off that. And I think it comes from, one, it's good because it's something that's genuinely commercially useful, chances are. And secondly, it comes from a place where they have that desire to solve it because it's a problem that annoys them no matter how small it is. Uh, it's a great way to try and get that experience. I mean, um, for, for you, actually, who's the, uh, who's the target for Wilco in general? Cause you, you come from that original computer science kind of degree background if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So is it more for career changes or for, or is it kind of for everyone?
1: Well, we, we try to, to do it for everyone because, You know, I I think I mentioned the the flight simulator analogy earlier, Mm -hmm. and if you're a pilot, it doesn't matter how many years of experience you have or how many hours of flight you're logging per month. You still need to go through the simulator because a regular flight just doesn't prepare you for everything you need. And, you know, if if you need to land on the Hudson, nothing in a regular flight is going to prepare you for that. Um, And it's kind of like that in software engineering. And the more experience you have, the harder it is for you to encounter new types of scenarios that you haven't haven't seen uh, in the past especially if you're staying with the same company and you know are basically mostly fielding the same types of scenarios so we think that it could fit any experience level and in any background Um, but when you're just starting out the roi could be really could be perceived really quickly Um, Just because you know going from zero to one just is is way more visible than going from nine to
0: nine point one. Absolutely, yeah. And something I find interesting about what you said there about how if you're going through the same processes at the same company, this is actually a very under-discussed point about job hopping. And I'm quite pro job hopping as long as it's not to a ridiculous degree. Like I think. People only talk about job hopping in the sense of, oh, you're doing it because it's much easier. Uh, you know, say the average company will maybe give you a 5 to 10% raise uh, each year that you're there. Whereas as a software engineer in a good economy, you can make anything from 20% to 100% increase by, by moving. Um, but actually as well, if you move to a new tech stack, new systems, new type of company, you're going to be exposed to all kinds of new problems. And it's going to broaden your value as an engineer and make sure one, no skills aren't getting stale that you already have. And two, you pick up new things, so I think I think it's really important. And um, I guess I uh, something that I really like as well about Wilco is all the different quests you have on there, um, because it it's different areas that you can broaden your skill set on, right? And you can pick something that's um, suitable uh, for you. I mean, is there uh, I'm maybe putting you on the spot here? Is there a particular quest that you recommend people kind of get started with as their first one if they're a junior developer?
1: Sure. So you know, first of all, if you're a junior developer, you can just go through our uh, full stack journey and that is actually going to take you through a series of quests to build up your full stack web development skills. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just pick that and and go with the flow. Um I do want to address what you said about switching jobs because of uh you know, for in order to be exposed to new challenges and in surveys time and time again, developers always pick opportunities for, for professional growth as the number one motivator and mm-hmm. as the, and lack of opportunity for professional growth as the number one reason they leave a workplace. So yes, there's, you know, money involved and, and, and um, sometimes when you switch jobs, you can leverage that to, to get a nice bump. But eventually if people stay at the same job for too long, especially if they don't have a way to expose themselves to different challenges within uh, the company there is a good chance you know they'll be demotivated very quickly and and even if they don't leave they might not be your best employee anymore so keeping them challenged is just super important and and that's actually something cool you can do with wilco because if if i'm an employer and i know that you know i don't have any new types of challenges for cam but I actually have this thing called Wilco uh and Cam can can practice so many different scenarios on it without us having to actually encounter them then you know maybe I can actually help both Cam's career progression and his engagement um with the company
0: Yeah yeah that it, it makes a lot of sense and It's it's cool because you can have different simulated scenarios as we as we discussed that you know maybe you're either not going to come up against uh, at the moment either because it's a I I don't know if you have any quests about maybe a security breach or or a DevOps incident that hopefully you don't have to come across in your day to day work but still useful if um, if if you (laughs) if you get some kind of exposure to it and and even if it
1: happens in real life you know there's going to be maybe a handful of people dealing with it. What about mm-hmm. all the others? How are they going to learn from this? So what would usually happen in a team is you'd write a postmortem document and there's going to be a lot of thought and effort going into producing that document. But once it's done, it's going to get thrown into the archive and no one is ever going to read it again. But if you build a quest on top of Welco, and you capture that experience, then people not only can re, uh, relive it, they would hopefully want to relive it because it's going to be interesting and fun and 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 going to be a game like we, we uh, talked about in the beginning. So, you know, you can do that and people can also choose to play it in different ways again and again. And that way, the entire team is learning from it and not just one person.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting um point there that you can kind of bring multiple people in rather than just leaving it to a handful like uh, a squad to just deal with it a right, post-mortem it's probably not going to be looked at even if you say you are chances are some more important works coming up and then we all know yeah. how it is with software engineering work there's always something more important than some kind of process that you know you'll you have all the best intentions to go and look at it and learn from it but it often ends up not happening um and the other thing I wanted to ask about Wilco actually was, is there any particular tech stack that you favor or is it agnostic in terms of what you can um, approach the tasks with?
1: So if you're using the the quest from the uh, from the catalog that was built by Wilco, um, you have a choice between several um, stacks. Um, you can choose uh, Node.js or Ruby or Python as your end language. Um, you can have a relational database um in in postgres or uh, a document database in mongo um but if you're building your own quests the sky's the limit and any tech tech stack that you want um can be used
0: this was something i want to ask you about actually So, i was checking this out on 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 wilco earlier you can build your own quest is that is that open to anyone and then you can either make it publicly or privately available How, how does that work
1: yeah, um, you go on our, uh, on our SDK uh, website. You have the documentation for it. Um, you have examples uh, of quests. You can definitely build your own. And at the end of it, um, you're going to send it to us for a review. Um, there might be a bit of a back and forth with feedback. And, and then at the end of it, it's going to make it to our quest catalog. If you go to our catalog, you'll see um, quests by the community um and there's uh there's a handful of quests uh over there already um you know by just people who've who've built them
0: yeah that's that's really cool i uh i like that it's kind of the open source spirit which is uh which is really cool um and in terms of languages actually uh, again maybe putting you on the spot here um do, do you think there's any particular tech stack that a new developer, particularly career changers, should think about learning if they want to get ahead over the next few years?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I always like to say that stacks change, so you definitely shouldn't be uh, tied to any specific stack. Just you know, go with, with what works best for you, but make sure that you learn the fundamentals so that you can switch stacks if you want to. Um, I think the most important stack to learn today is probably... Uh, JavaScript all the way. Um, first of all, because you know, in a single language, you can you can learn both the front end and the back end, which you can't do with any other language. Um, and Node is extremely popular as as a, a back end environment. Um, so I would say start with that. But my personal favorite, I have to admit, is Ruby, uh, and I'm going to stick to it no matter what. <laughs>
0: It's, you know, what's really interesting, this trend on from, so this must be, uh, depending when this releases, this will be episode 61 or 62, roughly, I think. And Ruby really trends towards entrepreneurial people. Um, so it, it's an interesting one. I guess it's because, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I guess it's the speed that you can build reliable applications. It, it, that's the major plus for it.
1: Yeah, it's the speed Um, It's also, you know, it it was built for developers, whereas some of the other languages have had different considerations as the leading considerations for them. Definitely the more, you know, system languages. Um, Ruby was just built for the enjoyment of the developer and, and it really shows. And I also think it has a great ecosystem in the sense that you can just start doing things without having to think too much about it some people would say oh there is so much you know magic happening behind the scenes you're not learning anything you're not doing anything um and and i i can understand that criticism but on the other hand you can just start doing and getting things done and experimenting and eventually you know there's no replacement to hands-on experience you know that's our whole premise at wilco And Ruby is the language that just allows you to start playing around with things in in the quickest way possible.
0: Yeah, I I haven't really used it uh, extensively myself. I've only played around um, with it, but, from what I've seen a lot of the JavaScript ecosystem now seems to be borrowing very heavily uh, from a lot of its ideas and from PHP's ideas as well, actually, because with stuff like Next.js, um, it apparently is going a similar way. I mean, I can't speak to it because I've never used Ruby or PHP in a commercial environment, but um, and now it now seems like it's all about getting stuff done quickly and, uh, and about the developer experience. And I found the, uh, the developer experience for, the stack you mentioned earlier that the JavaScript all the way down has improved pretty rapidly over the last couple of years. But uh, for me personally, I'm going to continue using the JavaScript all the way down, but I'm learning Rust on the side. I'm hedging my bets with a potential rise of WebAssembly um, and that sort of thing. I don't want to be caught out.
1: (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Adapting is the most important thing. And, and, you know, there, there used to be a saying that you should learn a new language every year Um, Mm -hmm. and. I would also say pick up as many paradigms. So you know, learn functional programming and 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 object oriented programming, and and compare the two, um, and see if you have a language that actually supports both of them and and lets you um, do both. It's not going to be purely functional if 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 it supports both. But um, you know, just experiment with those things. Uh, just but just do. Like that's the main message here. I think just start doing. Yeah. And and that's why I think Ruby is perfect. Like if you put me in front of a JavaScript stack, the first thing I'm going to do is start, you know, trying to answer so many questions, should I use this or that? Whereas if you put me in front of a Ruby stack, I'm just going to get stuff done.
0: Yeah, I think um, a, a lot of the time juniors will when they hear the word opinionated, they automatically think it's a bad thing when it comes to languages and frameworks. And actually it can be really helpful because it means you don't have to think about stuff and you can just, uh, you can just get stuff done. So uh,
1: yeah, we're, we're going to get um, so much, so much flair from the Ruby haters on this episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? It, it, it's so polarizing. It's, it, it's easily the most polarizing thing uh, that I ever talk about. Like, uh, no one really gets that. I think the only thing that comes close, in fact, it's funny because I mentioned it earlier, PHP, that's the only thing that comes close where people get angry and say uh, it's irrelevant or people get angry <laughs> if, I, if I praise it or people get angry. And um, if I sort of say, oh, it's not worth learning now, people get angry at me and say, oh, it's still a great system and 80% of the web runs on it. So it's one of those ones where, <laughs> um, yeah, Ruby and PHP wind people up a lot for some reason. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And eventually, you know, obviously the cliche goes that different languages fit different use cases, but it's absolutely true. And you shouldn't confine yourself to just one. And and like I said, you definitely shouldn't confine yourself to just one paradigm. Um, I started my career with um, C and C++ and a bit of C sharp. I after you know learning doing mostly Java in college and then mostly C and C and C sharp in my first and second jobs, then I switched to Ruby. Um and I've done Node and I've done Python and and you know what? If if you like what you're doing and you know you're you're able to pick up new languages easily, then that's awesome. And you know one day you'll work in python and then maybe a few months later you'll do some go programming and 6 months later you'll find yourself doing rust and all of this could even be on the same system right i mean nothing is preventing me from from, from mixing in uh ma- mixing and matching languages in even in a single system as long as it makes sense right um so yeah definitely uh definitely keep an open mind
0: yeah that, Except I for totally pearl, agree with
1: never, never use Perl.
0: <laughs> I've never really come across it. To be honest, what what's so bad about pearl? Uh,
1: no, I'm just I'm just kidding. It's.
0: Uh... <laughs> I was gonna the the only other point I was gonna I was gonna make is people talk about like if languages go out of fashion. If you wait long enough um, for a language to go really out of fashion, you can suddenly make huge money being a contractor for it. Like if you learn, you know, if you went and learnt COBOL now. Because everyone else yep. that did it is like 80 years old. No one else has known it. I've heard some banks in London. I don't know what it's like in, in Tel Aviv, but apparently some banks down in London are uh, paying up to £3,000 a day for people, for people to go in and, um, and, and yeah. go to COBOL. But ba- I mean, I respect the pensioners 99. for securing the bag.
1: <laughs> yeah, but back in 99, a lot of people made, uh, made fortunes uh, through their knowledge of COBOL as banks were scrambling to fix the uh, Y2K bug. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, so, yeah, a language that's falling out of fashion—if—if if, you know you know how to work it, there's a good uh, there's a good opportunity there. Uh, but then, yeah. on the other hand, there is a good chance that it, it, it's kind of binary. If you get a job, then it's going to be very highly. Um, it, it's going to be a very highly paid one. Um, but you can also not find a job. <laughs> uh, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being a, a you know, a, a, an athlete, uh, they make a lot of money, but then they get cut from a team and, and sometimes they don't find a, a, another one.
0: Yeah. It's a good analogy. I think definitely stick with your early advice for the juniors. Like definitely JavaScript is probably a good stack of choice. Like I did actually, the reason I bring up Kobo is I had a junior message me on TikTok the other day. And say, because um, I did a video about how COBOL developers have historically made quite a lot of money at different points. Um, and he said, oh, should I, I'm, I'm graduating uni soon. Should I learn COBOL? And I was just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I like it. I like the idea of going and making, <laughs> they were going to go and make a load of money. But um, yeah, probably just <laughs> just learn something modern, hedge the bets first, and then go and learn something wild if you want to do a business opportunity, I think. Cool. So thanks so much for, uh, for joining me today on. If people want to find out more about uh, Wilco, where's the best place they can go?
1: Well, the best place is to, to go to our website, trywilco.com. Um, you can also, uh, follow us on Twitter. Um, our handle is also try Wilco. Um, those, those are probably the best places to learn more. Um, and you know, feel free to also, uh, follow me if you want uh, if you want uh, a mixture of tech and dad jokes.
0: <laughs> yeah. My, my Twitter is much the same. A lot of, a lot of bad jokes and, uh, a few tech, um, few tech takes and then occasionally, um, the, uh, the odd rugby rant on a Saturday afternoon if I've had a couple of cans <laughs> of uh, so it's always good to mix a bit of the real personality in there. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining me. This has been a really awesome and insightful episode. Was there any last bit of wisdom that you want to give out while, while still on the show?
1: Um, well, I, I think that the, we, we ended on, on what's probably the most important thing, which is keep an open mind and practice, practice, practice. Um, this was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more than practice, practice, practice. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, looking forward to keeping in touch.